0: Well, in the words of Phil Rizzuto, holy cow. Welcome to episode three of Championship Robust with Max, Zach, and Josh. And today, we once again shift back to the early 1900s. Uh, in episode one, we covered the 1903 World Series. Then we had a special episode for the new Hall of Fame elections. And now we're skipping ahead two years to 1905. Now, you may be wondering, why did we skip the 1904 season? Well, there was actually no World Series in 1904. In 1904, the Giants and Americans won their pennants and had the best records in their league. But this time, owner John T. Brush said, eh, you know what? We're so much better than you that we don't want to bother with you. And as you can imagine, fans couldn't stand it. And John T. Brush became part of the group to officially seal the deal to have World Series formally recognized in the future moving forward. So moving on from that year to 1905, that's not the only change. Uh, the World Series went from a best of nine to a best of seven, which is what we know it as today. And the World Series ended in five games as the Giants beat the Philadelphia Athletics four games to one. And while we'll get really deeper into the great players that were a part of it later, what really sticks out to me here is the managerial battle. And that's going to be a common theme of today. Connie Mack versus John McGraw, two of the greatest managers of all time. They actually ended up combining for 86 years of managerial experience, which is something that we'll probably never see again in terms of the amount of tenure uh, in Major League Baseball. So with that, that ends our intro. And without further ado, we'll turn it over to Josh to discuss the legendary ballparks of the Polo Grounds and Columbia Park.
1: Yeah, man, I mean, you don't really get any more legendary than the Polo Grounds, although it wasn't uh, the Polo Grounds 4, which is the one we really know today. You know, everybody knows the the weird little, you know, bathtub shape and, uh, you know, really short poles and then the incredibly, incredibly deep outfield, you know, center field there. Nobody was hitting a home run there. I think there's like maybe six or seven home runs ever that have been hit over that center field wall. But this was Polo Grounds 3 and it didn't become known as Polo Grounds 4 until there was a, a renovation after a fire in 1911. So this is a couple years before that. So Polo Grounds 3 was known as Brotherhood, Brotherhood Park uh, when it opened in 1890. And, you know, as you know, it was about 280 down left field line, about 258 on the right field line, a whopping 483 in center field. Jesus. And left center and right center were about 450 where they had the uh, bullpens for both teams. And, of course, that is the home of the Giants. And then the home of the Athletics was Columbia Park, also known as Columbia Avenue Grounds. It was built in 1901, and it was the home of the Philadelphia Athletics, who played there for about eight seasons. The park pretty much fell into disuse after they left uh, in 1909, where they moved into a larger uh, Scheib Park. And the park ended up getting demolished in, about, in the 1910s. Uh, the stadium was small, and originally had a seating capacity of about uh, 9,500 people, and it was increased to about 13,000. Uh, by adding some bleacher seating in the outfield. Uh, this, this stadium was known to only have one uh, clubhouse, one dressing room for the home team, and visiting teams actually had to change in their hotels. Wow. And even wow. though a ballpark was in Philadelphia's brewery town section, they weren't allowed to sell beer. <laughs> so imagine going to a game and we're even allowed to have a nice cold beer. What a shame. That's funny. Weird times. <laughs> But, no, what Amelia
0: sticks out here is, like, just looking at the demographics. Like, um, Columbia Park looks pretty much like a relatively normal stadium outside of right field. But the polo grounds, it's 483 dead center, and you are going 279 and 258 wow. left and right. Just the thought of how many home runs would be hit going left and right with today's guys. Uh, you know, we talk about the right field porch with Yankee Stadium. And we're going back almost, you know, 50 feet in yeah. and seeing how that would go. It just makes you think of, like, how different careers would be.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, Columbia Park is, is like Yankee Stadium on steroids. I mean, their their right field line was 280 with wow. the 323 in right center. But their left field line was 340, 392 in left center. So, I mean, if you're, if you're a left-handed hitter, man, you had, you know, you had the advantage by far. For sure. Not that guy's... Back then, we're really hitting that many home runs. Yeah, but, you know, Still. if this was a park nowadays, yeah, a left-handed batter would really excel in a park like that. Wow,
2: uh, Josh, let me ask you: Did was there any uh, underwater baseball being played at any of these?
1: Underwater baseball? No, I don't. I don't think so. Not not in these ones. Even if the you know the Polo Grounds was called bathtub, but no, <laughs> just
0: a 1903 thing, huh?
1: Just a 1903 thing. Hey man, if you're not playing in knee deep water, I don't know what you're doing. Rain <laughs> or shine baseball. Okay. Alright, so now that we've covered both of the fabulous stadiums that these two teams played in, I will send it over to Zach and he'll tell you more about the actual games. Yeah,
2: so series as a whole, the Giants beat the athletics four to one. I'm sure we all know that. And my first immediate thought was what is this series known for today? Everyone obviously thinks of Christy Mathewson's three shutouts over the course of six days, but all five games were actually shutouts, which is really crazy to think about. Um, and Max is going to talk a little about this later, but there's obviously two great Hall of Fame managers, and we'll get into that more in depth in just a little bit. Um, context going into the World Series, Giants were clearly a better team, holding first place all year, literally since the second week of April, <clears throat> won over 100 games. And Philadelphia reached first place in late August and held on despite a late season slump to make it there. And here, even before the series started, we had another episode of baseball being wacky slash corrupt in the early 1900s when arguably the Athletics' best pitcher, Rube Waddell, had an injury wrestling a teammate, Andy Coakley. And some speculate that Waddell was even paid off to fake the injury, but nothing is confirmed. Uh, so game one That's takes place. Crazy, man. I know. It's nuts. I mean, it gets even worse with the Black Sox stuff, but that's in a few years. We'll get into that one day. <laughs>
1: I mean, I mean, I mean, yeah, but who's paying off the you know the Athletics to take a dive here? I mean, the Giants were the clear favorites, you know, far and away.
0: But there were also so many rumors about so many other guys that threw games too. So it definitely wasn't limited to just this year or the Black Sox.
2: Even so, imagine being that dumb and like wrestling, wrestling a teammate like
1: that. Like what? Hey, man, boys are going to be boys. <laughs> Jonathan
0: Tabelbon and Bryce Harper did it. Oh, yeah. Oh, I don't know. I wouldn't call that wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yay, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, well, game
2: one takes place on Monday, October 9th, 1905 at Columbia Park, Josh talked about. And you guessed it. It was a shutout. Giants win 3-0. Uh, Matthewson takes the mound against 25-game winner Eddie Plank. Uh Plank did pitch well, all, all in all considered, You know, giving up two runs in the fifth and the third in the ninth. But you can't beat Mathewson. He blanked the A's, gave up four hits, and struck out six. And Mathewson also just pulled a Jacob deGrom and con- contributed on offense as well, hitting a single in the fifth to start that rally and then sacrificing the runner over to second in the ninth to get that insurance run across. So he's really playing both sides of the ball here. Game two. Takes place Tuesday, uh, actually a day after, but it's at the Polo Ground, so they take a train up to New York. Philly wins 3-0. Giants trot out Iron Man Joe McGinty against Chief Bender for the A's. Brief fun fact, McGinty got the name Iron Man because he was known for throwing in both games of doubleheaders on the same day.
1: I'll never see that again.
2: Nope, never. Never. Um, And Bender ended up shutting out the Giants and only giving up four hits, so, you know, rivaling Christy Mathewson here. And McGitney went eight innings, giving up three runs, but all unearned. One run scored in the third inning off a botched grounder, while the other two were scored in the eighth. Two complete game shutouts in a row on either side, and the series ends up being tied at one. Game three goes back to Philly on a Thursday, a day off. New York wins 9-0. They routed him. Matthewson again takes the mound on two days rest against another over-20 game winner, Andy Coakley. You know, A's trying to play near perfect to try and crack Christie, but they just can't do it. They didn't help themselves either. Philly made four errors and gave up seven earned runs on this game, and the Giants ended up putting the game away in the fifth, scoring five runs on four hits on that inning. And, again, Matthewson pitched another four-hit shutout. Truly unheard of.
0: That's why he's in the inaugural class. Yup.
2: Game four takes place on the Friday. Again, right day right after, but it's in uh, New York. So, again, train back and forth, I'm assuming. Iron Man Joe is back out there on two days rest against Eddie Plank for the Athletics. This game, very uneventful. Around four, four hits in total in this game. Lone run was scored on a, an unearned in the fourth inning for New York when the leadoff hitter reached base due to a shortstop error. Here we are. Game five, New York's up. It's in the polo grounds. Sellout crowd. I think it was like 24,000 were there. Matthewson again comes back to the mound after only two days rest and the A's tried out Chief Bender again. Game was scoreless until the fifth when the Giants scored on a sack fly and they would get an insurance run in the eighth when, again, Matthewson himself scored on the ground out. Mathewson dominated for a third time, shutting out the athletics and giving up five hits today as the Giants would take the series 4-1 and he'd give up just 14 hits in three games, complete game shutouts. Obviously, we've talked about first best of seven series. Just a few fun facts. Uh, John McGraw... Giants manager had previously referred to the athletics as a quote-unquote white elephant, which the club uh, adopted as their symbolic mascot and is still one of the A's alternate logos. I'm sure you guys know that.
1: I I never knew why that was because it never made any sense when they showed those on the uniforms. Yeah, me too. That's crazy. They've been using that for over 100 years.
2: Nuts. And obviously, this was the first and currently only World Series consisting of entirely complete game shutouts. Uh, only one reliever was used in the entire series. Red Ames really for Joe McKinney.
0: You really can't have a better World Series than that. That's incredible. Wow. I, I got to say
1: something bad that just crossed my mind. What? <laughs> uh, speaking, speaking of the A's and the White Elephant, I mean, I thought that was just because the, the way that team is managed is such a circus. <laughs> not wrong.
2: Yeah, I mean, they've been
1: miserable, but... <laughs> Anyway, back uh, to what you were saying.
2: Yeah, only one reliever used in the entire series in Game 2. Um, and also, pretty bad stat here for Philly. Uh, notice how Philly's, they only scored on unearned runs in that Game 2 that they won. This puts New York's earned run average at zero for the entire <laughs> series. They never gave up an earned run in the World Series. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's wow. crazy. I mean, I know when we talked about 1903, that was – like half the run scored one earned, but to not score a single earned run in a five-game series, yeah, that's pretty bad. Yeah, so... Maybe New York was right to not want to play them. Yeah, maybe they were. Uh, (laughs) And again, this was only
2: done once in the World Series, but this was actually done a second time in the Wild Card Series in 2020 when the Atlanta Braves blanked the Cincinnati Reds. But that was a three-game series, so there is a little leeway there. But still, the fact that it happened again... It's pretty crazy.
1: I wouldn't count that.
2: And Last one for you. The first steal of home base during the World Series occurred during the fifth inning of Game 3 by New York's Bill Thalene on a front end of a double steal.
0: There you go. He's still getting Hall of Fame chatter. He's never gotten in, but everyone's been on him. I talked about him a little bit in 03, I think, too. Oh, Really? Yeah, but there's been multiple podcasts talking about his Hall of Fame case, a lot of people for his case, uh obviously a Dead Bull era guy. So stats don't really hold up, but you know, there's a he's one of the few people that from that era that aren't in yet that really haven't been forgotten in those discussions. Gotcha.
2: Well, yeah, that's all I had for the, you know, game breakdown, some fun facts. Um turn it over to Mac here for the Hall of Famer section.
0: Sounds good. So talking about six Hall of Fame players, obviously one did not play, Mr. Rube Waddell, Uh, you know, the fight of steel. And we also have two managers and one umpire. Uh, so the players were Roger Bresnahan, Christy Mathewson, Joe McGitney, Man, Chief Bender, and Eddie Plank. Two managers, John McGraw and Connie Mack, obviously, and one umpire, Hank O'Day. Hank O'Day has the rare distinction of being able to say that he called the 1903 and 1905 World Series, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2013, well after his death, but he was a player and manager at the major league level. I won't go too far into it because I know I talked about him before in the past, but definitely some more stats on him since I know I didn't cover it much. He was just one game under 500 in his career as a manager, and finished as a as a pitcher with a 73 and 110 record with a 3.74 ERA. So at the time, not the best pitcher, but um solid manager and a hall of fame umpire um more on rube waddell who obviously as we said did not play but he was on the athletics from 1902 to 1907 he led the league in the era twice won uh the pitching triple crown in 1905 and made the hall of fame in 1946 with that big old timers committee that i mentioned in the past two other athletics who wound up making the hall of fame uh two of the most unlucky pitchers that you can ever see uh chief bender Spent the World Series going one and one with a 1.06 ERA. We love the Dead Bowl era. And in his full career, he led the league in winning percentage three times and had a career ERA of 2.46, inducted in 1953 by the Veterans Committee, and it took him 16 Hall of Fame elections to reach the 75% mark. Uh, So the Veterans Committee helped him out there, but he had votes in 16 different elections. This was back when sometimes they had two or three elections in the same year. But 16 tries and he eventually got in. Very well deserving. Eddie Plank um, was another Hall of Famer for the Athletics. He went 0 2 with a 1.59 ERA. So both Great these job. guys just got the short end of the stick in every way, shape, or form, even for the Dead in The man.
1: offense, man. Score None. a run, Holy. Zero offense.
0: Yep. So for perspective, he was a 300 win pitcher with a career 2.35 ERA. Wow. So it's not like it was that he pitched badly, and that's relative to the era, he had a 1.59 ERA. So he was you know, almost 0. 0.8 lower than he normally would be. And he still went 0-2. Uh, so he'll definitely be coming up again because he did win three World Series after this time. So even though he lost this time, he he definitely was a frequent flyer in the World Series. And he was also inducted in that 1946 all-timer committee class along with Rube Waddell. So moving on to the championship-winning New York Giants. Man, I wish I could say that in football now. Uh, (laughs) Roger Bresnahan hit three thirteen in the World Series, going 5-for-16. He also had four walks and two hit-by-pitches. So he really reached base um, 11 times out of 22, so 50-50. He was inducted via the Old Timers Committee in 1945, the year before those other guys. With a ton of different people, including Ed Delahanty and Fred Clark. Definitely not really strong career numbers, even relative to the time period. Uh, He had a career batting average of 279. I know batting average isn't the biggest thing now, but back then it really mattered. And he had 1,252 career hits with a 42.8 career wins above replacement. So definitely sounds low. Uh, He was a catcher, so that does have an impact, but still. Uh, Then we go to the Iron Man, Joe. Uh, Pitched for 10 seasons, so he was barely Hall of Fame eligible. But in those <laughs> 10 seasons, he won 246 games. Wow. And he had a career 2.66 ERA. I know, like I said, similar wow. to batting average, wins aren't the big fun stat anymore. Yeah. But he did lead the league in wins five times.
1: Jeez. He was averaging almost 25 wins a season.
0: Yep. Yeah. And it shows that the dominant team absolutely trusted him. And I think that matters. But despite this, it still took him eight tries on the voting to get in, and he joined Eddie Plank in that same old-timers committee election, so with him and Rube Waddell. So a lot of appearances in that 1946 committee uh, coming up in the first few of these episodes. And last but not least, I won't go too far into him because Zach hit it really on the head, but Christy Matthewson, one of the first five Hall of Famers in the inaugural class of 1936, obviously had the World Series of a Lifetime. Uh, over 100 career wins above replacement, a 373 and 188 career win loss record, two triple crowns, led the league in wins four times, ERA five times, strikeouts five times, and whip four times. So, anyone who watched the Johan Santana episode, you know how I feel about leading the league uh, <laughs> three times in multiple categories. Clearly dominant, clearly one of the very few best of his era, and one of the best all time to this day. No real debate there whatsoever. But there is a debate with our Hall of Fame managers, Connie Mack and John McGraw. So I'm going to hit both of you guys with this, and I'm pulling up my list that I did during COVID, which I alluded to when uh, we did our Hall of Fame episode. But just to kind of refresh memory, uh, during the pandemic, I was really bored, and I decided to basically mentally blow up Cooperstown and start over from scratch. As you do during- when you're bored. yes. I'm a nerd, I know. Players, managers, um, executives, the Negro Leagues, and contributors. All separate categories ranked um, by the numbers. So, I'm not going to tell you guys where I ranked Connie Mack and John McGraw, but I will tell you they were within two of each other. And both were in my top five. So, I'm interested to see where you go with this. So, Connie Mack... Um, was a manager for 53 seasons. Wow. Career win-loss record of 3,731 and 3,948. So he was 217 games under five hundred. career 486 winning percentage. He made nine pennants and won five championships. So just to recap, 53 seasons – 200 games under 500, but won five titles with nine World Series appearances. Yeah. John McGraw, 33 seasons, so 20 less seasons than Connie Mack. 2,763 and 1,948. So he's 800 games over 500, but he only won three championships instead of five. But he made 10 World Series instead of nine. Keep in mind, John McGraw was on the New York Giants – who made it in 1904 and the owner said we don't want to play it so there could have been a fourth one there so adding that context in part of me is you know kind of interesting where you guys go with it and i'm still kind of uncertain of where my position is because i had him so close before i even put that into consideration so based on that would you almost rather be the guy who managed 20 more seasons one a lesser percentage of your games but won two more titles or the guy who managed 20 seasons less won 800 more games than they lost and won three titles and made it there 10 times
2: yeah at that point I think I'd lean Connie Mack because long, uh, longevity at some point is valuable but then you think about what you said McGraw was, you know managing one of the best teams in baseball for those whole eras and couldn't win Half of his World Series appearances with that, you know, they're always the Giants were stacked, so that's really like eye opening. I didn't realize that he was three for three for ten, right?
0: Yeah, he was three for ten, but in reality, it was really three for nine. The tenth season, nineteen oh four, I can't really count him as losing it. Oh, right, right.
2: Oh, but still, he's really at three that for point, nine. I'd give it to yeah. Okay. Um, but still, I think I'd lean towards Connie Mack just because of, I mean, yeah, he's very much below 500 and that's not good, but I mean, look at the ACE team he was managing. He managed that ACE team to get to that world series, um, you know, to face the best team in baseball. It's not his fault. They had absolutely zero offense for those five games. Um, so yeah, I'd actually lean Connie Mack a little bit here.
0: Uh, sure. What's your take? And then I, I want to hit you guys something
1: else. I, I, I would be inclined to agree. I, I mean, <laughs> you're going to go to the 1-9 World Series and you're only going to win three of them with a team that was that dominant in that time. I mean, we know, especially especially nowadays, you know, you don't really need to do all that much in a regular season. But, you know, come playoff time, that, that's when the manager needs to be good. I mean, you know, we're all Yankee fans, and we sit here and go, oh, Aaron Boone's yep. such an idiot. This guy's terrible. And everyone goes, but yeah, he's winning games. He makes the playoffs. So it's like, yeah, but he makes boneheaded decisions in the playoffs, and that's why they lose. Yep. Well, uh, to me, that seems to be the same thing that's applying here. I mean, you know, you have the best team in baseball, but you can't win? That's not good. It's not a good look.
0: So yeah. let me give you blind comp before I tell you where I went with this. Because I want to see where you go in here. And these are also two guys who are within each other on my list. This is number 10 and number 12. You know who both of these guys are. They were from our era, our childhood. 29 seasons, 500 games over 500, one title, five pennants.
1: Am I supposed to guess? What? Am I supposed to guess this?
0: Yeah. 29 seasons,
1: 500 games over. What? Can I have another hit? No, wait, Mike. Um, Mike, is it LaRosa?
0: Not quite. Lewis has more titles. This guy was on in a National League borderline dynasty that was always the bridesmaid and broke through one time.
1: One team? They won one time. I got to think. Uh, Remix stats one more time.
0: 29 seasons. twenty five oh four and 2001. So 500 games over 500. One title and five pennants. This would be kind of my modern parallel to John McGraw. Because he made ah. it a lot, didn't quite win.
2: Like I want but to retired, say, he's
0: retired now. He's retired now. He made the Hall of Fame, actually in the same year as Tony La Russa. I've never got. Oh. It. Uh Bobby Cox. Bobby Cox. So Bobby Cox is almost like the modern parallel in a way. He didn't win as many titles. He didn't make it as many times. But there were also a lot more teams now and a lot more parity. So I think there's kind of a similar there. So now this one will be a little bit easier, a little more modern. 25 seasons, 2003 and 2029. So 23 games under 500, three titles, four pennants.
2: Three titles, four.
0: He's active. Is that Bochi? It's Bruce Bochi. Let's go. So who would you be, Bobby Cox or Bruce Bochi? Bochi, 100%. Interesting. So. This is where I'm kind of yeah, realizing my anyway, own. Go
1: I gotta go, go with Bochi too. I mean, those Giants teams were good, right? they were yeah. good. They weren't that good. But they and won. they
0: didn't really have any guy who other than Buster Posey was like a Hall of Fame level guy
1: either. But they won. I they mean, were really good. Bumgarner was that good. Yeah, Bumgarner
2: playoffs. was that dude. Right. But yeah, so- I
1: mean I mean I, I mean again, you, he didn't have the best team, but he went out there and made them the best team. That's a good manager.
0: wholeheartedly agree and i'm actually changing this a little bit right now so i from when i did this in 2020 i had connie mack as the third greatest manager of all time and i had john mcgraw at number five so i agree with you connie mack over john mcgraw um when it came to the other two i had bobby cox at 10 and bruce Bochy at 12 and i think i'm actually going to flip them right now uh because you're right and it's i see that parallel as i was you know going through everything it just made a lot of sense to me of like Bobby Cox being the guy on really good teams with really talented players, getting to you know winning those NL crowns, winning that NL East division year after year after year, and only breaking through the one time. And that's not a shot at Bobby Cox either, mm-hmm. but he had a talented bunch, and Bruce Bochy had a talented group, but not like that.
2: Yeah, arguably less talented. With
0: but I think I gave, I think I. Uh, took too many points off of Bochy for being under 500 for his career. When in reality, Connie Mack was too. And Connie Mack's, in my opinion, the third best manager ever. So I think that that uh, kind of changed my tune a little bit. So I was interested to see what you thought. I know I put you guys on the spot a little bit there, but I thought it could be uh, something a little bit fun to do. So, I was
2: happy. I guess that was all right.
0: Who's 11 in
1: the middle of them?
0: Tommy Lasorda. Oh,
1: so 21
0: okay. seasons... He was 160 over 500, so he was over the 500. He won two titles and made the same amount of pennants as Bochi with four. Gotcha. So those three are kind of like in the same amount. I probably would go Bochi, Lasorda, and Cox. I didn't want to make it so dependent on the amount of championships, but that does yeah. matter, especially for managers. Like, what else are you really judging them on? So I, I think I'm going to end up flipping those two. But that's the thing about this thing is, like, my one rule with this was – once someone's on the list, they're never taken off, which I have some regrets since then of people but, who I've put on here, who I probably shouldn't have. Maybe I was a little premature with some active players, but I can change rankings as I please. So once they're on, they're on, but the ratings can change. We're kind of branching forward with what we're talking about with Sherm's point of there being, you know, the manager having an impact on winning games. We were talking about Bruce Bochy versus Bobby Cox. Uh I don't know if managers are having the impact that they are now. And when I'm looking at the the top 15 on my list when I first made this, I just want you to take a look and think about how many modern guys are there. So may also be a reflection of my list and maybe I'm looking at the wrong things, but I just don't know if managers are impacting the game the way they used to. So here are my top 15 in order and try to think of how many modern guys you see here. So Casey Stengel, Joe McCarthy, Connie Mack, Walter Alston, John McGraw, Tony La Russa, Sparky Anderson, Joe Torre, Miller Huggins, Bobby Cox, Tommy Lasorda, Bruce Bochi, Frank Chance, Earl Weaver, and Billy Southworth. So... How many of these managers do you really consider a modern era manager? Four? Yeah, probably, right? La Russa, Cox, Tori, and Bochi. Yep. I mean, maybe if you want to add La- Lasorda or uh, Sparky Anderson, but you're talking about four out of 15 so most of these great managers who won all these championships and part of it might have been the fact that there were lesser teams and things like that. But the great managers seem to be almost a thing of the past. And even the the people that we brought up as modern, Joe Torrey has been out of the league 10 years. Bobby Cox has been out of the league 10 years. Tony La Russa has yeah. been out of the league 10 years and then came back and it was not the best, smooth, not the most smooth sailing for him. So – especially now with the shift and the pitcher limits and all these other things, how much impact are managers really having now? Are they kind of what I've accused Aaron Boone of being a puppet of the GM or are they having an impact on winning games? So I guess I'll open it up to
1: Sherm first. Uh, That's, that's, that's a tough question because you bring up a lot of points there. I mean, uh, to me, Personally, I think that guys, especially, you know, back in nineteen oh five, these guys didn't do anything. They wrote a lineup card, your picture through the whole game, exactly. you had nothing to worry about once the guy got hurt. And a lot of these guys, they were playing too. They were more worried about their own at bats than what, what everybody else was doing. They didn't they didn't have to care.
0: That is fair, John McGraw was a player manager for a while. Yeah. And I believe Connie Mack was too.
1: Yeah, and I mean you know, I you know, nowadays they're moving away from the manager's really being involved again now that you you know you have universal DH and you have guys like Aaron Boone who is literally just you know Cashman's puppet. You know the GM is is literally you know phoning down. I mean well, this is all speculation, but you know most of us think it's true that the GM is phoning down to the you know the bench and telling it this is what you're doing, this is what you're doing now, and you're gonna go stand in front of the media and hear for it later when it blows up in my face.
0: <laughs> the numbers departments run baseball.
1: Yes. Yeah, but I mean, you know maybe. You know 10 20 years ago when guys like toy were managing yeah I mean you had a you had to control your bullpen and and you had to control your team there was a lot especially in the national league a national league manager uh, is the most important manager in baseball because they have to manage the team yeah. you have to manage your pitching changes your pinch hitters and all of that stuff you know an American league team doesn't have to worry about that. And way back when when they didn't really use relievers, you don't have to worry about that. But to me, that's that's the manager that really made the most impact regular season. Postseason more than fair. Yeah, I, I think in the postseason it becomes a little more important on how you're managing your teams, but, but still, I mean if you didn't have to worry about a relief a relief pitcher, what what did you have to worry about at all? Unless a guy got hurt.
0: Very fair, and it's ironic that as I bring it up that like really the only thing that a manager today has to worry about is the relief pitchers. Yeah. But back then, the managers didn't have to worry about that. I mean, I guess the biggest thing they had to worry about was making sure that their star players didn't get into the fist fights in the middle of the game.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, really. I mean, I mean, I'll I'll give you the hottest of hot takes right here. Oh. Uh, I I mean, you know, Joe Torre won us four World Series, but to say that he was a great manager, oh boy, I I, I can't I can't do that. Sure. I don't
0: disagree. I think he's a Hall of Fame manager, but I think it was a lot of right place at the right time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, you look at his stats before he came to the Yankees. He was, you know, yeah, he managed a really bad Mets team. And then he went to the Braves and the Cardinals, and they were 500 teams, a little bit over 500. And then you get handed the absolutely stacked 1996 Yankees, and you go and you win four World Series in five years. Yeah. Any manager, any manager can write out that lineup card. It's not that hard. I but, can write that lineup card.
2: But uh, what's hey. his name? Bobby? He's yeah. Coming
1: in. Yeah, I mean this. i mean, yeah. I mean, really, you know, it's like, <laughs> oh, I got, I got a two-run lead in the ninth inning. Who am I going to bring in? Oh, it's a real head scratcher. Kyle Fonsworth. <laughs> Job <Yeah>. of Chamberlain. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> but I mean, this is not baseball. Is not. You know, it's not it's not a football, it's not a hockey, it's not a basketball where you're running plays and you're making a and you're making a an system, you're making a scheme. It's you go out there, you throw the ball over the damn plate, and you hit the ball when it's thrown over the plate. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's tactics and all that stuff, but it's I, I just don't I don't see the impact as much. You no, know, as much as I'll say things now about you know how the Yankees uh, approach the plate is disgusting, and I want the entire staff fired. Because <laughs> guys will look at two fastballs down the middle and then swinging it and swinging a slider down the way, yep. and I watch it happen over and over and over again. Yep. And they start winning games and they stop doing that, mm-hmm. and then they and then they lose ten in a row, and they go right back into that thing. And all the guys on social media and all the you know the beat reporters are sitting there scratching their head, going, "I, I don't get it. I don't understand why they're not hitting. Well, <laughs> that's why they're not hitting because their approach sucks. And if you watch the game for more than ten minutes, you can figure that out. But nobody wants to call anybody out on it. I'll call you out." That's because why the numbers say so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the numbers say so. They're they're swinging at good pitches. No, they're not. Got to save these takes for the hot take episode, Sharon, That Tory. Yeah, we need a me. hot take episode, man. <laughs> that one got me. To wrap up what I just said, <laughs> National League managers ten years ago were the most important managers of all time. They had the most responsibility.
2: Sure.
0: No, well, that's absolutely fair.
2: Um, shoot. I don't know how to follow that up very well, but... Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you you I, asked you it to the first. head, man. I got to give it to you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you really killed that you really one, did. Sherm. Um, what was I going to say? But yeah, I to reiterate some of Sherm's points, there's stuff I agree with for sure. Like immediately what came to my mind was uh, early 1900s manager's jobs have to be easier because their pitchers pitched nine innings 85% of the time and when they don't you throw one guy in there who's usually your you know your third or fourth best pitcher you say pitch an inning please and then as far as rotation goes you're throwing the same guy out there every two freaking days so like
1: i don't know it's not tough um yeah i mean like, tell me how hard it was for you know the manager of the giants who out there and go right at matthewson you're going out there today and yeah guy throws a shutout and it's like all right two days later you, you're going to throw another one out there and then three days later it's like well, wow, man we got this series locked up one more time, let's see what Close you got. Close it out for me, I mean, yeah, <laughs> dude. Matthews let a guy get to third base once. Nuts. In twenty-seven innings, one Unheard time. Of. That's insane. How it's hard? Strange. How hard is that to write out? Now you got to worry about us. Who's playing what position? That's exactly. not like these guys were carrying these these giant rosters they carry now. You are yeah. like six subs. That's it. <laughs> and everybody can play every position. You don't have these guys that are. 800 pounds playing third base, I can't play <laughs> anything but third base.
2: Uh, yeah, you're not wrong. Um, and again, another point that Sherm brings up that's real good is I think managers, when we were younger, like 10, 20 years ago, is peak of managing. I immediately think of guys like Mike Sosha, uh, Joe Madden comes to mind. Guys that I really thought were, you know, m- like masters of the game. I mean, you know, inventing the shift and all that kind of stuff. That's a whole other conversation. But you got to deal with bullpens. You have to, and actually now, you got to deal with reviews and win a challenge. And God knows Boone doesn't do that well, but there's definitely an art to it. Well,
1: he's not doing that. I mean, that's a video yeah. guy in the booth. That's part of his staff, don't get me wrong, but that's not him. You're well, right. actually, because he was no sitting over that. Job
0: back then. You could argue Replay took away that job because their job was to yell at the umpires and get thrown out and, you know, throw hats and stuff. and throw Fire bases. their team up, yeah. In the Canela days and the Earl Weaver yep. days. But. I, that kind of all went away. But part of me wants to know, and I, I'll never want to be that guy that like does research in the middle of recording a podcast. But I kind of actually asked this, I want to look up the origin of where the name manager came from in baseball because it's basically a coach. And I always wonder growing up, like why you know, they call them a manager when they're really a coach uh, who just makes a lineup card and you know decides on who's going where. but yeah. it seems like back, you know, then, managing behavior was so much more important than it is now because you have the guys who are, you know, gambling. You have the guys who are alcoholics. holics. I mean, (laughs) Joe McCarthy had to manage Babe Ruth at times. There's no secret about that. So it makes you wonder if that's actually where kind of that name came from. It could have been like a tongue-in-cheek thing.
2: That's a really good point. Probably a ton of uh, like there's such veteran presences now in the clubhouses where maybe you don't need that guy. Like the Yankees don't really need Boone firing him up. They got Judge, you know. They got guys like Rizzo. I know he's a clubhouse favorite, stuff like that. So,
1: uh, so uh, you know, because I am the kind of guy that would look it up in the middle of a podcast. Um, so the reason why they use the term manager is because back in the early days of pro Bowl, you know, you you know used to have um. You know, now we have your general manager that takes care of, the, you know, you the off the field stuff, you know, your, your team, ac- you know, player acquisitions and all that kind of stuff. Well, back in the day, that manager did everything. Not only was he, you know, the managing the team on the field, he was the general manager and, and everything. He did everything. Oh, now, some, some of them, it, it was either, either that guy did everything or the owner of the team was, you know, the general manager and did all right. that, that sort of stuff. And, and 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 you know, speaking of who we we're just talking about, Connie Mack, uh, he was the owner, the GM, and the coach all at once. Oh my god! Yo, yep.
2: <laughs> I'm just imagining um like a 80 year old Russo like trying to make business decisions
1: for the White Sox, leaves <laughs> left and right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm I think, not- but I think you know, you also got to remember that, especially because these guys were players. You know that kind of started tradition of managers wearing jerseys too, because no other sport does that. That's a good point.
0: Yeah.
2: Any uh, any extra thoughts on this, Mike? After hearing our takes,
0: I th- I think you hit it right on the head. I, I think it- I threw the debate out there because I was wondering kind of what the thoughts were, especially now that you know we always talk about Boone and how the GMs can kind of you know play puppet master to the managers sometimes, or at least it seems like it to our eyes. Um, but considering, you know, the idea that you only had a two man rotation at the time for the most part, and you were choosing the same position every day, there really wasn't as many responsibilities on the fields of a manager at that time period either, besides maybe, you know, sending signs, uh, which would later be stolen, but that's beside the point. So I, but no, I think you made excellent points and I I really have nothing else to add. I think that was fantastic,
2: and before we switch Thank topics, mm-hmm. um I'll take it, book yeah, uh I have a question <laughs> for you guys. I think there's gotta be like two types of managers today though, because like we're saying, there's managers like who we suspect Boone and like definitely like the Rays who are you know the g m in the front office are telling them what to do, but then there's gotta there's guys like Buck uh for the Mets and absolutely. I, I think I don't think Buck is taken flat from anybody. I think he's making his own decisions every day. And I think if Bruce Bochy is coming back to manage the Rangers, I don't think he's going to let the front office sit there and tell him what to do. You know,
1: I think Dusty Baker is the same way. Yeah, I think that that statement about the Mets might may or may not be true because from what I've heard is that Cohen went out and spent uh, an absolute boatload of money to have like the best analytics department in all of baseball because he can. Wow. So to say that manager is not listening at all, I I, I think is, 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 you know, you sure. guys got to evolve with the times. I, yeah, I, I don't think he'd be managing a team if he just didn't listen. No, I think it I may agree. be a lot
0: of hey, like you know, the analyst saying this, so if you're going with the opposite, you better be right.
1: Yeah, I just think
2: yeah. a guy like Buck is is going to make most of the final calls, like more than a guy like Boone for sure.
1: I yeah, I, I agree I think, with uh, that. I, I think he definitely has final say, but I, he's he's not. Ignoring the analytics, but Buck is also a guy that's not, you know, I mean, the other obvious job of your manager is to manage your players and create a relationship with them. And he's the kind of guy that's going to go in there and take a team with a lot of egos like Francisco Lindor and put them in their place. Yeah. That's what he's there to do. Yeah. I mean, you have guys like Scherzer and Verlander who are some of the best pitchers in baseball. You need to have a manager that they will respect. But also will stay in line for.
2: Agree, yeah.
1: And a guy like Buck is a kind of guy that's going to do that. You oh, can't have the second did it. Yeah, you can't have yeah. You can't have a guy like Boone who nobody respects. For sure. Then again, I mean, you know, the players will say they respect them, but you know, uh, he's one of those guys where it's like, I'm your friend. The, I don't think the Yankees need an I'm your friend kind of guy. Yeah, Adam yeah, Silver. They, they need a guy like Buck.
2: The Adam Silver
1: of
0: baseball. <laughs> Truth. I, I'm s I am i can not wait for our hot tech episode so I can rant about that. And that concludes our little broadcast on the nineteen oh five World Series. But before we go, um any uninterrupted time that either one of you would like to share with us?
1: Oh I got one for you. Yay. What do we I got? Mean, man, oh boy. I don't know if you guys have been watching World Baseball Classic, but we're you know we're about a weekend and I'm watching Team USA, and I'm like, man, this lineup is stacked. i are at at top of the lineup. Betts, Trout, Arenado, Goldschmidt. These guys are MVPs. Kyle like the... Yeah, no, not, not that guy. <laughs> that guy's the third catcher on the team. Come on. Sorry, that I said, that, guy, is, that guy shouldn't even be the first. That guy is like the second catcher on the Yankees, and honestly shouldn't even be the second catcher on the Yankees. Yeah, I take Gary Sanchez any day of the week. Back to what I was saying before you rip my head off for that one. The USA pitching staff is so disgustingly bad, it just makes me sad. I mean you have so many good American born pitchers. You know, you got Scherzer, you got Cole, Wheeler, Nola, Degrom, and who's our number one starter? Adam Wainwright. Ninety five year old Adam Wainwright. And I like Adam Wainwright. But he's your ace. Oh God. I mean, they got they got destroyed by Mexico. I'm not taking anything away from Mexico. But you can't be given them 13 runs at all, especially in a tournament where the tiebreaker is runs allowed. I mean, USA has to win out and pray to God that somebody else goes up more runs. I mean, this could be the first time ever that USA doesn't advance at a pool play because their pitching staff is that bad.
2: Good old Brady Singer.
1: <laughs> hey, give
0: some respect to Brady Singer. I will not <laughs> call Brady Flander in this room.
1: Listen, man, I mean, nothing against the guys that are playing, and I'm sure they're all having the times of their life, but there's too many really, really good players that did not agree to play, which is just... Well, I mean, worst case, Andy
0: Pettit's a pitching coach, so, I mean, he's not much older than Wainwright. He could just suit up. No <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong, you're not wrong. Oh, you're not you know right. what, they got Ken Griffey Jr. on the... On the, on the hitting side? You no, know, on the bench, yeah. So I wanted to put him in the game too. True. There we go. Um,
2: one thing I'll say, Sherm, I know that the the new rules aren't being played, is that's correct, right? In the WBC, they're playing with the old rules. That's correct. So one could argue that your team wants you to stay and learn the new rules, so you're not going to you know, be an idiot the first two weeks of the regular season, maybe. That's where my head went.
1: I mean, nobody wants their players to go play in these things. Yeah. The chances of them getting hurt Liability. is, Liability. You know, astronomical. Maybe not as quite as much as baseball, but I know that's always, you know, the fight between, you know, the NHL and, and yeah. the Olympics, that they never want the players to go, and that's why they didn't go a couple of years ago. Because, you know, someone like, you know, Tavares ended up absolutely yep. destroying his knee and missing the rest of the season. You know, it happens. But these guys want to go represent their country, and you can't take that away from them. But I, I also can't, you know, can't imagine pitchers. I mean, I know the pitch clock thing, and there's already talk about Scherzer, you know, playing mind games because he's the kind of guy that'll, you know, sit there and wait and wait and wait and wait until, you know, until the batter steps out of the box and then doesn't get off the mound. So as soon as the guy steps in, he's throwing the pitch yeah. because he can. But I don't know. To me, it's really a fielder's thing, and, and, I've, and, and they've already shown, I forget what team it was, but. You know their way around the shift was, you know, they set up the infield, you know, in the non-shift way where the shortstop is basically it was a left-handed batter. Shortstop is basically standing behind second base, one step over, so that he wasn't, you know, breaking the plane of the base. And then they just had the right fielder move in, so he was standing where the second baseman used to stand, in mm-hmm. like that deep out, that like short outfield. Yeah. And then they just had the other two outfielders stand where. You know, they used to in the outfield, and it's just it's, – it's not – you know, they're – it's already being worked around. For sure. Is it going to be as bad as it used to be? No. Is it still bad? Yes. And they really need to rethink I, – I, I, mean, I mean, to me, you shouldn't be allowed to move – you know, there should be like, a, I don't know, a, a triangle behind second base where you're not allowed to stand. So that's not just the plane of, of, you know, straight down the middle. So you have to keep, you know, your infielders. If you hit a ball off the middle, I'm sorry, you should be getting a hit. Nine out of ten times you should be getting a hit. Yep. Yeah. And it's ridiculous that you're not. And then to have two outfielders, an outfielder standing so short, and another outfielder standing 60 feet behind them, it's just ridiculous. There has to be a better way to word the rules that, that you can't do that. Especially considering baseball is all about we want more runs. Well, clearly you don't.
2: Yeah, they'll put some new rules in play. I'm assuming in a few years to fix
1: all this too. But yes, that's that's my rant. Too many good American-born players, pitchers specifically, did not opt in to play.
0: Well, well done disgusting. in your rant, but I see a lot of disrespect to Adam Ottavino and Aaron Loop.
1: Uh, Listen, the, relie- the relievers they got are fine. But but to tell me that your number one starter is Brady Sager. And he wasn't a yeah. starter. And then and yes, your number three I... starter is Lance Lynn. Oof. remember Yankees. You don't even. Remember hey, who him. I was terrible in the Yankees. Yeah, he was once Yankee, Yankee. He's, re- he's revitalized his career since he's left. I'll give him that. So once again, he's right. Always a it. Yankee. We love Lance Lynn. No, we I don't even remember who started the second game, to be honest with you. But whoever it was did not do a good job.
2: Could be Canada and having a 19 year old trot out there against Team USA.
1: <laughs> yeah, you gotta feel bad for that kid because he got absolutely destroyed. Yeah, he got like six runs and two thirds of an inning. But I, I just I don't know I don't get it. But hey, you know what? You, you know, and all the Mets fans will hate me for this one, but uh, they said all the Mets fan they said all the Mets players on the bench and uh, they start scoring runs. <laughs> <laughs> I like and you know don't get me wrong, man. Do not do not get me wrong. I like Jeff McNeil, but he played horrific in the field against Mexico. I mean, really bad. He didn't get credit with any errors, but he should have.
0: He has his moments, even though we talked about him as the most underrated player in baseball in episode one. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, and by the way, the guy who started the, the second game, uh, Nick Martinez. Who? Exactly. Yep. Exactly. That uh, was who they put out against Mexico. Nick <laughs> Martinez. What are we doing? I guess we better go before Sherm alienates our fan base before we even
0: get one. (laughs) So fantastic job, boys. Uh, Thank you all for watching Championship or Bust, and we will see you next time for 1906.